Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. Reimagining Indian Ocean Worlds, co-edited by Shmiti Srinivas, Bettina Ngoeno, and Nilima J. Chandran, breaks new ground by bringing to that, together multidisciplinary approaches to examine contemporary Indian Ocean Worlds. It reconfigures the Indian Ocean as a space for conceptual and theoretical relationality, based on social science and humanities scholarship, thus moving away from an area-based and geographical approach to Indian Ocean studies. Contributors from a variety of disciplines focus on keywords such as relationality, space and place, quotidian practices, and new networks of memory and maps to offer original insights to reimagine the Indian Ocean. While the volume as a whole considers older histories, mobilities, and relationships between places in Indian Ocean worlds, it is centrally concerned with new connectivities and layered mappings forged in the lived experiences of individuals and communities today. The chapters are steeped in ethnographic, multimodal, and other humanities methodologies that examine different sources besides historical archives and textual materials, including everyday life, cities, museums, performances, the built environment, media, personal narratives, food, medical practices, or scientific explorations. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk not just about how this collaboration came to be, but also about how a different, many different fields, including history, anthropology, international relations, and area studies, may stand to benefit from this volume. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today, I have the great honor and pleasure of talking with Professors uh, Smriti Srinivas, Bettina Ngoeno, and Nilima J. Chandran, the co-editors of this incredible, incredible volume, Reimagining Indian Ocean Worlds. In our discussion of this volume, we will take a deep dive into the methodological questions and historiographical approaches that have structured the field of Indian Ocean studies, as well as new archival and methodological possibilities this volume opens up if we rethink the Indian Ocean as a space for conceptual and theoretical relationality. Smriti Srinivas is professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Srinivas's research interests include cities and urban cultures, religion, and the body, South Asia within a comparative context, as well as Indian Ocean worlds. Her works include The Mouths of People, The Voice of God, Buddhists and Muslims in a Frontier Community of Ladakh, A Study of Constructions of Cultural Identity Within the Context of Borderland Political Economy, Landscapes of Urban Memory, The Sacred and the Civic in India's High-Tech City, examining the various pathways that memory and the body take in Bangalore, a city inserted within global processes, in the presence of Sai Baba, focusing on the transnational religious movement centered on the Indian guru Satya Sai Baba, 
a place for utopia, urban designs from South Asia, exploring novel designs for utopian placemaking from the early 20th century to the present, linking South Asia with Europe and North America. Bettina Noeno is Assistant Professor of African and African American Studies at the University of California, Davis. Trained in anthropology and originally from Kenya, her research focuses on states and property in Latin America, and her broader research interests include issues of space, property, social justice, citizenship, city-states, race and ethnicity within Latin America, Africa, and the Indian Ocean. Her book, Turf Wars, focusing on Afro-Colombians in the Colombian Andes, examines how territory serves to connect and disconnect citizen and state in the context of today's changing state authority, legitimacy, and institutions. Her current research project centers around Nairobi, with a specific focus on long-term residence and the temporality and spatiality of the city. Nilima J. Chandran is a visiting as- assistant professor and a postdoctoral research fellow of African Studies and Asian Studies at Penn State University. From 2015 to 17, she worked as a Mellon visiting assistant professor for the Indian Ocean Worlds Research Initiative at the University of California, Davis. In fall 2015, she was a humanities research fellow at the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute um, at New York University Abu Dhabi. She's a scholar of the Indian Ocean world who examines alternative narratives, memoryscapes, repressed histories, material cultures, and placemaking practices, so as to understand historical and contemporary exchanges between Africa and Asia. She received her PhD from the Department of World Arts and Cultures at the University of California, Los Angeles. Welcome all to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with me about your deeply, deeply informative book today. I'm delighted to be here. So um, just to start us off, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in the Indian Ocean, and any sort of influential interlocutors that you've had so far? So maybe we can start with Dr. Srinivas, perhaps. Um, Thanks, Kelvin. I'm really happy to be here to discuss this book with you and and, um, to to whoever is listening. so very briefly, I think, um, you know, it would be fair to say that I come to anthropology and Indian Ocean studies via a, a traveling life that was spent uh, on the borders and, and boundaries between India, China and Southeast Asia. So uh, Assam, uh, Malaysia, uh, in Hong Kong and in Beijing, and then a return to uh, South India primarily before I went up to study in Delhi. So um, I think that this kind of um, sense of crossing many borders and having to work hard at translating between uh, different cultural spaces and landscapes, sort of my life unfolding against this background, um, the many homes and affected communities that uh, one participated in is probably the main impetus for me to uh, was the main impetus really to come to anthropology or sociology. Uh, and um, uh, my graduate work was done at the Delhi School of Economics, uh, which uh, you know was a, is a world-class social science uh, research center. And um, I actually studied sociology uh, or rather sociology anthropology because um, my department uh, believed that the... Um, sort of scaffolding of a Eurocentric framework that separated anthropology from sociology didn't really hold uh, in a place like South Asia. 
so my my training is very ambidextrous um and uh, uh with a with a very um strong sense of history and i think this uh is sort of unique uh, uh, you know for uh most anthropology departments i don't think there are many that replicate this kind of model so that's sort of my my training um and i count as my mentors people like rina das uh, jps oberoi andre bethe primarily thank you so much dr shinivas um and now let's hear from uh dr noeno thank you so much kelvin for uh the invitation to be here and i'm very happy to be able to talk with everybody here about this exciting book um i want to make one correction that i'm an associate professor i think you said assistant but i'm an associate professor um and i grew up in the cosmopolitan city of nairobi in kenya and i did all my uh, studies there until i went to university and um i went to university at the university of california at davis where i now am an associate professor uh, but i studied agricultural science and management so i was in a very different field and a different world um studying uh, agricultural science and management and i returned to kenya after after studying that and um ended up working in a science policy research institute in particular on issues of intellectual property and uh biotechnology and from that space actually was why i branched out into the social sciences a lot of the answers to questions uh scientific questions at that time we were working on questions of global warming tended to be uh responded in terms of political answers rather than scientific ones so the answer to the problem caused by western nations and japan at the time to do with um pollution was answered by not cutting the rainforest in ivory coast and i really wondered why that was the answer out of many possible answers why that one and why the displacement of the problem to another place so i became very interested in spaces um and places and the interconnections of the worlds and how we tell stories about the world to make those kind of answers seem reasonable and ac- accurate and adequate and i was working with someone at the time um who was an anthropologist and he suggested if i was interested in that i should go and study anthropology so i changed from agricultural science and management to anthropology i did a, a masters at stanford university and my phd work at the university at, at johns hopkins university and at johns hopkins i decided also to try and get out of the sort of conceptual field that we're stuck in in Kenya that is both an English language conceptual field and one that you know really looks at Africa in particular and study in Latin America in a place I studied in Colombia that had everything similar high altitude equatorial tropics coffee growers flower growers you know all these other things but really uh the world was very differently structured so I th- thought at that time I was really trying to get at these major issues of the world that structure our world as we know it and trying to come at them from a different space but still remained in this world actually very interested in uh, the question of property rights and governments and states so I looked at territories and states um and trying to figure out uh, and diaspora and uh, race and ethnicity of trying to think 
through these things, but from a perspective that allowed Africa to speak to Latin America. I had, however, done in my field work that I did for my master's, I had done work in the Indian Ocean region, and especially on the inheritance of land in coastal Kenya. And that one, that project dealt with questions about religion, about change, about community, and about how uh, Indian Ocean worlds overlap and intersect in coastal rural Kenya. And, and so from there, I also got interested in working in um, continuing these questions over land and property and returning home to do work about the relationality across between Asia and Africa um, in Indian Ocean worlds. Uh, my supervisor, Michel Rovtrio, is one of my uh, big effect on my understanding of the world and his questions about globalizations, universalities, and imagining of regions in particular affects the work that I do. Thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Nguino. And I'm, I, apolo- I do apologize for, for misrecognizing your um, associate professorship. Um, now, let's hear from Dr. Jay Chandran uh, on your intellectual genealogy, perhaps. Thank you, Kelvin. And I'm really happy to participate in this conversation. So I'm someone from the coast. My family is from Calicut and my parents who are retirees. They have moved to Fort Cochin, and they live in the heritage part of the town, and my locality is called as Nazareth. So uh, my family is very Indian Ocean-y, two big, uh, you know, port cities of the Indian Ocean, but I was never interested in Indian Ocean as an undergrad uh, or a graduate. You know, I guess you're not interested in stuff in your backyard. So (laughs) what happened was, When I came to UCLA to do my PhD, my advisor, Polly Roberts, had a project um, uh, which she studied, you know, the devotional circulation of Sai Baba movement. She was studying uh, the saint Shirdi Sai Baba and his uh, circulation, uh, that is circulation of religious materialities in the Indian Ocean world. So I was her research assistant and I got interested in the Sai Baba movement. Uh, because of being her RA. And um, I always tell people that I got rerouted to the Indian Ocean world through the Atlantic because uh, Polly Roberts and Al Roberts or Alan Roberts were uh, scholars of the Atlantic world. They studied Senegal. So I was trained by West Africanists and my Indian Ocean journey has been through the Atlantic despite living in an Indian Ocean city. So Uh, And that also made me see the Indian Ocean world in a very different light. So uh, I learned about how Indian Ocean memories are regained through different kind of cultural uh, processes, uh, but also through materialities and also through sensoriums. So, and it was primarily because of Polly Roberts and Alan Roberts scholarship on memory scapes, uh, but also on lived religions. That's really beautifully put. Thank you so much. And I think that we're just getting a sense of your the dazzling range of geographies that you all work on, from Ladakh and Bangalore to the Kauka Valley and Nairobi to Gujarat and the Konkani coast. So perhaps could you tell us a bit more about how you became um, interested in engaging with the Indian Ocean, not just as a sort of empirical space for fieldwork, but as an analytic space for thinking about speciality and mobility? 
and how Indian Ocean Studies may speak back to themes of political economy or subject formation that you examine in, in your respective works? Um, right. So um, I'll go first. Um, I think that really two things that happened, uh, Kevin. One is that um, in some ways, like uh, like my um, uh, co-editors, I think one returned to the Indian Ocean and uh, sort of lived embodied sense of what the Indian Ocean was. Uh, uh, but now trying to relate that uh, through this work uh to some kind of conceptual or philosophical terrain. So in my experience, I think that's really what happened. Um, and secondly, um, it was sort of a retrospective look at the work that I'd actually been doing for the last you know, 20, 25 years, which was in fact all about the Indian Ocean. So my, my Ladakh work, uh, which was you know, in the, in the uh, very close to Tibet and the Himalayas, um, seems very far from the Indian Ocean, but of course, anybody who has studied, um, you know, the relationship between Central Asia and the Indian Ocean or read Chaudhary's book knows that these trade routes were never distinct in history. Um, and so I think that work was also uh, very much part of Indian Ocean studies. So I think Trans-Asia and the Indian Ocean can't really be separated from each other. Um, but secondly, the work that I did subsequently with uh, my work on in landscapes of urban memory, which was a study of Bangalore, which is known as the new Silicon Valley now, but historically has had very significant Indian Ocean connections from the late, uh, from, from, the, from the 18th century at least, uh, until the present. So there was a way in which the cities become inserted into different kinds of global processes today, but was already inserted in global processes, you know, from the 17th century, which were very much part of the Indian Ocean uh, space that we imagine. And then the uh, Sai Baba book, which was a study of the Guru Satya Sai Baba, uh, who died uh, in 2011, 1926 to 2011, the pathways that were charted by the Guru himself, which were from uh, South India to East Africa, became a way for me to actually uh, following his tracks. So my uh, in the presence of Sai Baba book actually ended up examining a number of cities, which we wouldn't have thought was were necessarily Indian Oceany to begin with, but uh, were crafted into some sort of proximity by the movement itself. So Atlanta, Nairobi, Bangalore, Puttaparthi became part of this new map of the Indian Ocean. So um, so I think that that's really, uh, so, it, you know, the ways in which spatiality and mobility can be, can be remade, uh, I think each of these books taught me, or each of these fieldwork experiences taught me that uh, there are several such, uh, such pathways. Um, how does the Indian Ocean speak back? I mean, I think it does a number of things. I think it offers a very radical perspective uh, that insists on the contemporaneity of lives and sites. So for me, that's what the Indian Ocean does. It's and the the contemporaneity may may be completely novel. Uh, the geography that it draws may be completely novel. Um, I think the second thing is that it it forces you necessarily to engage in a not always easy but uh, necessary transcultural intellectual project. I think that's the second thing that uh, it does. 
uh, and I think the third is that it forces you to sort of analyze, of course, affinities, differences, but also um, what we might call refabulations across the Indian Ocean. So for me, these are the three uh, uh, takeaways from Indian Ocean studies to anthropology, if you like. That's so beautiful put. Thank you so much for that. I think when uh, I think about um, how how I came to look at Indian Ocean studies, it was multiple. I had I had in doing my master's degree, I had always framed it in this global context, and that really continued in um, my look at uh, uh, and the people I studied with, people like Michel Rothrio or Sydney Men, so Car- Caribbeanists in general have always had a globalist perspective in a way that much of the rest of anthropology hasn't tried to do and interactions between other places. But I always found that most of the writing on Indian Ocean is limited in interesting ways when it deals with Africans and Africa. And it tends to get lost in 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 the in that writing in very specific ways. So I was interested in looking at the way stories are told, in the way writing uh, comes into place. And I had already started thinking about moving to do my work in the Indian Ocean, also to be able to be at home more often in Kenya. And um, and then I got the opportunity in 2011 to uh, join um, the the uh, planning team of the Aga Khan University's campus in Arusha. And so Aga Khan University at that time had a campus in um, Arusha. It was going to have a, it was building a campus in Arusha. It had a campus in uh, Karachi. It had um, different out, outputs in uh, different parts of Central Asia with the University of Central Asia. And it had um, connections in Nairobi. And the planning team was in Nairobi. And part of what we were doing when we were working with the Aga Khan University was imagining East Africa um, and through the East African Uni as part of the Indian Ocean world. And working with them for two years on their planning team also made me really think conceptually about how do you reframe, how do you reframe the kinds of perspectives if you're thinking about this Indian Ocean world that includes Central Asia as well as the Middle East in particular, East Africa um, and South Asia, um, and thinking about it beyond uh, in a different way, because I think there's been an incredible focus, especially on the movement, for instance, of people who are either Arab or South Asian in that space, but not really on other people in as as active agents. Um, mainly usually has non-agents. And so that was also part of my interest in how do we tell the tale? How do we understand language? How do we understand space? And what does it look like from these different perspectives? So I'd come to that idea and uh, we got together with Smriti trying to think about this, like how do we think about um, coming to a conversation? How do we talk about it? How do we bring those conversations together? And how do we start something like that at UC Davis? And I think uh, one of the interests for me has always been about space and about placemaking, and both about movement, mobility, but as well as stasis, and how that not all things moved and not all things uh the idea of a very flexible mobility is one side of things, but what about the things that get stuck or don't move and how we conceptualize space 
and the and people. And then the other interest for me has always been about the questions of power. How is power structured within these systems um, that have, have been often presented as very power-free, um, as very cosmopolitan, but not thinking of cosmopolitan as something that includes incredible structures of power and how those operate across different sort of platforms than we, we think of uh, when thinking about the rest of the world. Completely. Thank you so much. And I think that that's something that your volume contributes centrally as well to both interrogate this interplay between fixity and mobility in critical, important ways, as well as to foreground a question of power and of difference um, in perhaps uh, in, to, to perhaps disrupt this sort of narrative of seamless cosmopolitanism that has occupied studies of the Indian Ocean so far. Um, and Dr. J. Chandran? Yeah, I have a tough act to follow but I'll try my best. Uh, so for me, Indian Ocean presented a certain dynamism. Uh, you know, um, the histories are kind of messy and so are the memories. Uh, but also when I started doing a comparative fieldwork for my dissertation research, which was, uh, you know, comparing Almina in Ghana to Fort Cochin in India, there were certain things that I naturally know or knew going into uh, Ghana, you know, the way to navigate the roads. And the uh, space was so familiar. The geography was so familiar. I remembered my feet covered in orange, uh, you know, sand, which is very typical of the coastal Kerala. So I became interested in affective histories or affective knowledges of the spaces. And that kind of continued, you know, how does these spaces are so similar? And I was also thinking this might have been the same for people who have been navigating the Indian Ocean world, or for that matter, or navigating the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean world. Um, it's also because these spaces in the Indian Ocean world kind of provide a certain um, similar understanding of space. And I guess that is the reason why, you know, uh, if you travel to port cities, many of the port cities have a similar kind of spatial layout and stuff like that. And I guess growing up in a port city, uh, I realized that. And when I visited other port cities, you know, I felt I was at home. So um, Indian Ocean, in a sense, kind of uh, brought me to home, but also understood made me understand how it would have felt for other people who have traveled this oceanic geography. Uh, but again, um, as I say, you know, I like using the framework of Indian Ocean because um, it helps me to kind of uh, disrupt a certain kind of, you know, uh, what to say, dominant uh, narratives or for that matter, dominant methodologies. Uh, so, Coming from a department of world arts and cultures, we were using, you know, ethnographic uh, but perform uh, per performative, uh, for that matter. Um, also, you know, drawing from methodologies of indigenous scholars. So uh, that kind of helped me to kind of build my own methodologies in the Indian Ocean, and it was kind of the perfect place to do so. Lovely. Thank you so much. And I think that that's so beautifully put because so much of that um, thinking about the Indian Ocean as a, as a space for homecoming for many um, scholars as well, that was just such a resonant theme, I think, for many of us working on the Indian Ocean. Um, 
And just turning to the book itself, it, there are 14 chapters in, in this volume organized around four main themes, proximity and distance, landscapes, oceanscapes, and practices, memory and maps, and methods and disciplines. The book thus addresses a broad range of thematic concerns and geographic spaces while opening up new possibilities for the study of the Indian Ocean. But really what struck me about it was that this volume was truly a labor of love, many, many years in the making. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how this volume, Reimagining Indian Ocean Worlds, came to be, as well as the symposium, lecture series, and conferences behind it. So how did the idea develop? What was the sort of process of edit, uh, editorializing this volume like? And who were your interlocutors? And how did your own thinking around the Indian Ocean evolve in process? Um, well, I'll, I'll say a few things, and then you know maybe my co-editors can um, jump in. Um, so this was really a five-year project, or in, in, in some ways it's been a lifelong project, but let's just focus uh, on what happened at Davis. Um, we, uh, Bettina and I got together and uh, uh, got some funding through the Davis Humanities Institute uh, for a one-year project in 2014 called Indian Ocean Imaginaries. And this brought together about 14 faculty and graduate students um, and we, there were just conversations that went on uh, every month uh, through the course. Actually, I think it was every two weeks through the course of the whole year. I'm trying to sort of read the literature on the Indian Ocean and find out what was occluded uh, from view. And I think the result was that we, when we went into the next phase of the project, which was a uh, three to four, actually a four year, as it turned out, a uh, four-year, Mellon-funded, half-a-million-dollar project uh, uh, at UC Davis. We brought, I think we had about 19 people then. Uh, Nilima joined us for two years as a visiting assistant professor. And the it was really a grand experiment. I mean, the experiment was to see if by focusing on different kinds of keywords, uh, you know, the contemporary or the contemporaneous, uh, uh, looking at issues of relationality, et cetera, which we can speak about more, whether this would push the boundaries of the Indian Ocean in some way. We came from different disciplines. We were able to fund a large number of graduate students to go do fieldwork in the Indian Ocean and then bring them back into conversation through what we were calling the Innovation Lab, where you know somebody from South Sudan had to talk to somebody from, from Goa. Uh, and, and this research, uh, and I think that it was actually an extremely energetic conversation within UC Davis uh, that went on really for five years. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I can say for myself that at the end, I, I think I was convinced of the absolute necessity to cross-fertilize Indian Ocean studies uh, from other disciplines uh, which I think it's been less fertilized than, let's say, studies of the Black Atlantic or something. So bringing all of these disciplines into conversation and different methods, I think, uh, was what uh, what was really critical for my process uh, through the end. But the other half of this was that really it was just a supremely collaborative project, uh, Kelvin. I don't think we could have predicted the outcome. I mean, we had no predictions for the outcome. Um, and then, you know, um, we can, others will also contribute to who else were part of this conversation, who else was part of this conversation across five years. Um, I think we, uh, we, 
I have to say, I don't know where I ended and somebody else began by the end, if that makes sense. I mean, it's really kind of an interspecies entanglement. I do think that's uh, really true. Um, one of the big strengths of it was the both the people involved and perhaps the structure of it. When I came up with the idea of an innovation lab, the main idea was to have... Um, people give comments on papers as opposed to presenting papers. So people will have read a paper and then they give comments. And this is work in progress. It's not anything finished. It's not anything perfect or whatever. And I think the people who came to that table at the, from the beginning within UC Davis were really generous, really interested and able. And you had a discussion who had a, such a different field and they had to say how that work also said something to their work. And we kind of pulled that through. Maybe Nilima will talk more about some of the people who came, but some of the people in the volume, very before we uh, actually uh, uh, did the volume, we got together as a workshop that was structured in a similar way where everybody gave feedback on everybody's chapter. And the thing about it that was so powerful, it gives you everybody an idea of the whole of the book. And it really was um, such a phenomenally generous conversation with people being so helpful and really uh, taking part in everybody else's work that it, it became so much easier as an edited volume, as a, as a conversation, but it also brought us to, you know, different ways of thinking. And I still send people comments like, oh, have, you know, did you think of this thing? Because it's still uh, reverberating in my head on a project that they're doing totally different now, you know, and they send me comments in the same way. And I think that possibility of an open space of conversation is actually also echoed in the kind of work we were trying to do, right? To try uh, experimental, to reimagine, uh, to take that space and just see what happens. And I think for me, you know, one of the things I was so interested in was how, it, what are the sort of limits of the Indian Ocean? Uh, how do we imagine them, etc. I don't think I've come to any conclusions on that at all. Rather. I have so many different ways of thinking about it and different ways that you think, well, that's not quite sufficient. What if we look at this other kind of way of imagining it and thinking about the power of framing and then how does that work out in what we're doing so that it's uh, taking, you know, pushing things that had already come up in, let's say, Atlantic studies, other stuff about how do you conceive of regions, but really pushing those boundaries. Uh, just to add on, you know, while we also brought a lot of people to uh, the UC Davis campus, we also kind of went out, uh, meaning like for over five years, we actually brewed this conversation at different platforms. So what we did was actually we would create multi-panels in Association for African Studies or a big conference on uh, conferences on Africa, Asia. So we actually went to different sites, uh, Asia, Africa, Europe, and participated for five years on different topics on the Indian Ocean world. So we were also kind of playing around with our keywords, you know. So one conference would be just tailored around relationalities, the others on methodology. So five years at different venues, we kind of did this, uh, you know, testing of our own ideas. And we have to kind of thank the many collaborators and participants mm -hmm. who joined us. 
at these different venues. You know, literally every year we were kind of creating two panels minimum, and we are still doing that. So that kind of helped us to gauge a larger understanding of NRS and also what is needed and what is urgent in the Indian Ocean studies, so which we were able to then directly address through the questions that we formulated in our introduction. So that was a really helpful process in kind of engaging with actually a global uh, you know, audience, both scholars, graduate students, uh, but many a times, you know, uh, there were also artists, uh, but also people who were working in human rights and other kind of social activism. So that was a very um, engaging um, process, I have to tell you. So I just wanted to throw out a, a, a few names. So, you know, we, um, I think that one of the things that was truly amazing was that uh, senior scholars of the Indian Ocean, uh, you know, Edward Alpers, Ned Alpers, uh, Sunil Amrit, Nile Green, uh, and several others, including Amitabh Ghosh, uh, ended up in conversation with us during this five-year process. So not all of them ended up in this final volume, but I think they're very much part of the process of thinking this volume. So I do want to acknowledge um, that we, um, uh, that we, you know, had a, a, a huge amount of support for this project. Uh, uh, as I said, some people didn't end up in the in the volume as it turned out, but I think they're very much part of the memory of this volume. And also, I want to acknowledge the institutions who invited us to organize these, uh, you know, multi-panels. So a shout out to them. Completely. Thank you so much. And I think that I want to stay on um, this topic of keywords for a bit longer, because I think that Indian Ocean Studies as a as a field that has developed in the past few decades um, for historians, for art historians, uh, anthropologists, geographers, uh, political scientists, etc., there has been a sort of domination of certain keywords in Indian Ocean Studies. So we just keep seeing them recur over and over again. Trade, mobility, migration, diaspora, cosmopolitanism. Before we delve into the specific intervention that uh, the volume is posing and the specific keywords that you introduced to um, Indian Ocean Studies, could you perhaps elaborate slightly on how this earlier historiography or this body of scholarship has developed and what remains inadequate, perhaps, or occluded from, from this body of work? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to talk about our book. So I think I'm going to keep this really brief um, because I, I see we... Uh, we don't have a, a whole lot of time. But I think that, uh, you know, Bettina and I quickly came to the conclusion that it was most of the work seemed to be around two themes. And these themes emerged from making the Indian Ocean itself the framework for, I mean, the geographical limits of the ocean, the framework for the conversation. So one was obviously mobilities, you know, whether it's trade or people or whatever across. Um, and then this necessarily meant that you ended up focusing on ports or coastal sites or islands. And so the omissions were, uh, well, places that were far in the interior uh, were not part of the conversation. Um, uh, you know, place making, as, as Bettina pointed out, rather than mobility. Uh, so we came up with some key terms that we thought uh, actually helped um, uh 
focus our uh, our endeavors and uh, these were um, conceptual and theoretical rationality versus geography of the Indian Ocean. Um, second, the idea of, um, or in addition to mobilities, place and placemaking, um, instead of just older histories of the Indian Ocean to look at the ways in which people harnessed memory uh, today uh, to reimagine their maps of the Indian Ocean. And I think lastly, to balance historical archives uh, and historical research with ethnographic or fieldwork or multimodal methodology. So that was what I think we were seeing as not part of the discussion. Would you agree, Bettina, Nilima? I would certainly agree uh, because, you know, there are scholars who are looking at sensoriums now. Uh, there are scholars who are looking at uh, performances in the Indian Ocean world, you know. Uh, dances or circulation of um, uh, musical performances and stuff like that. So, um, but they are kind of speaking to uh, ethnologists or they're speaking to ethnomusicologists, but not really to Indian Ocean scholars. So we were trying to see how can we engage with these scholarships, you know, uh, and how can we actually fold them into Indian Ocean studies. So that is one of the reasons why we we were interested in contemporary contemporaneous, but also relationalities. Um, so to engage with art historians who are working around the circulation of maybe doors or furnitures in the Indian Ocean world, uh, but also, uh, again, uh, with a whole uh, range of people. Now, I know there are some amazing uh, scholars who are working on the Anthropocene, but they are curating exhibitions so in order to engage with these scholars, I guess that is why we were focusing on contemporaneous, but again, uh, specifically to move away from the littoral, to expand both the disciplinary as well as the spatial um, limits of the Indian Ocean itself. And if actually I will say a little on the, the contemporaneous also, I think it brought us into a different kind of engagement with the literature that existed already. Um, and it wasn't so much to say, you know, we're not interested in that. It's actually, how does that have a lived experience today? Like, the, how, how does it reverberate through both the content, but actually the literature itself, through the contemporary? And so in that, we became interested in things like layered maps and the, uh, the reworking of um, stories about places and placemaking and the way that it's done. And so that you have both the... In the contemporary, you were forced to look at both being stuck and both being mobile and some people being stuck and mobile at the same time, you know, and displacements and and uh, things like that that are that are a bit different from the usual uh, focus on the Indian Ocean. The Indian Ocean always historically pulls you in. It has so rich, it has so much complicated and detailed uh, movement. So it's very easy to be in that moment, well, what is what are people contemporarily doing with that? And how did they then make sense of their worlds? And so that became uh, one, of the, one of the ways of opening up the conversation was to look at the contemporary and the mm -hmm. contemporaneous. That is so beautifully put, because I think that your volume really does revisit the, the contemporary and the contemporaneous as sites for not simply lived experiences in the present, but also as the active site where memories are 
being made and remade and transformed and contested and negotiated. And I think that this was really apparent in the third section, Memory and Maps, with contributions from Pedro Machado, Hafiz Ahmed Jamali, and Nicole Ranganat. That really turns to the question of memory scapes and memory formation, contestations over, over how migration, slavery, etc. are narrativized, and how... Um, how the contemporaneous experience of fixity versus mobility in the, in the Indian Ocean is actually lived. I think the other sort of main contribution that I see in your volume is is really sort of an intervention against the reification of Indi- the Indian Ocean as a geographically bound space. Um, and it's really ironic because given that Indian Ocean was itself a response against area studies, it has mm-hmm. sort of coalesced into a sort of area studies space as well. Um, here, I want to sort of point our attention to the first section, Proximity and Distance, with contributions from Jeremy Presto, May Joseph, Ishani Saraf, and Nidhi Mahajan, as well as the second section, Landscapes, Oceanscapes, and Practices, with contributions from Netra Samara Wikrema, Maya Costa Pinto, Christian Dahl, and Bidita Jauher Titi, that both, I think, importantly point to ways where um, geographic con- contiguity is not a precondition for the establishment of different affective relationalities between different places. So they really highlight the sort of role of the Indian Ocean, the, the felt lived presence of the Indian Ocean as far inland as the dry port of the national capital region of Delhi, or in among seafaring communities in Kutch, or in terms of plan, uh, urban infrastructure in Juba in South Sudan, um, bringing together, you know, engagements, drawing together um, geographies as disparate as Goa or Bangladesh that are not usually thought of as, you know, part of the this Indian Ocean narrative of connectedness. Um, so here I want to pose the question, what does this analytic foregrounding of indirect connections and inapparent relationalities enable us to see? And how might it highlight layered mappings, as you mentioned, of these disparate geographies within and beyond and across the Indian Ocean? Well, I could go with that one. So again, um, indirect relationalities or inapparent relationalities for me first started popping out when I started, you know, doing my field work in Ghana. And I would see images of Hindu gods and voodoo shrines in Togo and Benin. Uh, but then I was also invited to an emancipation ceremony in Anambabu in, in coastal Ghana. So this is where the, uh, you know, the homeland tours come and uh, African descent community uh, from actually Suriname and Guyana was performing this uh, ritual of emancipation. So I was invited to it and, uh, you know, what they served me was part Indian food. So it was very interesting because A, I am participating in uh, back to the homeland tours of this African descent community, but then eating samosa and chicken curry. So, and it was a very kind of uh, interesting experience for me, which made me actually, that was when I was thinking about this uh, inappearant relationalities, because uh, one of the reasons they were serving and I asked uh, the women who were cooking was because, you know, the Indian cuisine is big in Suriname as well as uh, Guyana and there is an Indo-Caribbean cuisine out there and primarily because of the circulation of endangered Indian, uh, you know, uh, labors uh, to Caribbean. So, um, but we really do not talk about how these connections resurfaces at different sites you know, and in different formats, but then 
are also kind of appearing in different uh, spaces here in the in this instance a ritual space a ritual space for homeland tourists returning back to Ghana so uh, that made me actually that was the first time that i thought about you know this inappearing relationalities and i kept seeing that through my study of you know african saints in india but also african slave spirits because um, uh, Kapri, the African slave spirit worshipped in uh, coastal Kerala, would smoke cigar and, you know, uh, and is offered lucifone food. And uh, so there are all these uh, indirect connections that was appearing through different realms. So uh, probably that is the reason um, why we were stressing on relationalities, if anyone wants to add here? Yeah, I can also add to that. We were stressing on relationalities, but also on questions about the limits of the Indian Ocean and how we might think about those. And partly, um, you know, to get away from the geographies of coasts and islands, mainly and only that, um, because and also to think about the political power of thinking of it in certain ways. And um, so some people say, you know, in, in African studies, the coast has, the ocean has, we've turned our back on the ocean and Indian Ocean studies had tended to turn their back on the continent. And so the question was, you know, you can't just stand at the high tide mark and never really look with your backs to each other and not look in only one direction. And so part of what, what the question about the limits of the Indian Ocean was how to think about them uh, conceptually. And from that, I had come from Caribbean studies in thinking about how do we understand not just an Atlantic world, but a Caribbean as a, as a, as a region rather than as, a, as an area study, but um, which had been thought of in multiple ways uh, that are more defined by history than geography. And in this way, we're also thinking about what kinds of connections, what would make, you know, the fact that you have boats that are basically dows on Lake Victoria, how do you talk about that? How do you think about that? How do you understand uh, the movements of people in uh, interior India where someone is saying, or in Pakistan where people say, you look like you're Pakistani to me, uh, because of the histories that they're dealing with that are different from, um, that are not in the forefront of the usual conversation about those places. And so we were interested in, 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 in getting beyond the coastline and beyond the islands to try and think about these spaces, but also getting beyond just individualized communities and thinking about a, a wider context and trying to think about how the relationalities work um, what, 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 how are they constituted? What, what doors do they open up and which ones get closed down? Um, and allow in the contemporary moment, like, uh, the overlapping and the remapping of memories into those spaces. Right. And I, I can add to that too, Calvin. I think that, you know, across both of those, uh, first two sections, proximity and distance, uh, landscape, oceanscapes, practices, but also memories and maps, it seems as if um, we were grappling with at least two main issues, uh, which you know you you also uh, noticed and mentioned. The first one was how do you indeed make conceptual comparisons between disparate geographies and histories, and that's really the key thing. Uh, and it can be done as as 
Bettina and uh, Nilima pointed out uh, uh, by, by, by several strategies. The first is by, uh, by layering, either layering of memories or histories that make available certain relationalities. Uh, and so this might be as simple as, uh, uh, you know, looking at one community or by looking at a series of practices that make this apparent. The, the second, I think, is asking about how distances can be or, or, or differences can be made proximate to you. Uh, and I think that is done by following practices. Uh, they can be somatic practices, they can be mnemonic practices, they can be religious practices, etc. And I think that a lot of the work uh, that, come, that came out in this volume really grappled with this. So, for instance, you know, to say that you can have connectivities that are beyond the coast, that extend far inland and actually into, uh, extend underground through mines, uh, or uh, to, to uh, you know, see that all relationalities are not based on movement, that there's a kind of worlding that happens by actors because of the way in which they uh, improvise uh, international and regional connections uh, within particular places, uh, the ways in which both past networks but also emerging networks come together to make but also disrupt places. Um, I think we see this in several of the uh, several of the um, essays and chapters in this. So I think that this is um, this is you know and, and the fact that we were able to bring into sight places that were never in view, uh, casinos, uh, you know, interior cities, uh, museums. We, we have some work on museums, um, but also somatic practices and medical practices. I think all of this was really a contribution, uh, a, a very important contribution. But I want to say in this context that, you know, it's, it's an experiment. It was an experiment, but I think the stakes are very, very high for Indian Ocean studies. And I, I do want to say a few things about this, and then you know maybe uh, my my co-editors will want to uh, contribute. I think the, the the stakes are high because of territorial and religious nationalisms today that we face, and this is something Indian, the Indian Ocean is a way of un, undoing, I think, religious or territorial nationalism. The second is, which is related, is the issue of statist or infrastructural narratives about the ocean, which seem to be very, very dominant and in fact are growing uh, as, let's say, India and China compete for Africa or, or whatever, or other places in Southeast Asia. Uh, and I think the third is, and this is where my, my own you know, future work is concerned with, which is about living or life in the Anthropocene. I mean, we, we, need, we need to confront this. And I think that the Indian Ocean, as some work is already beginning to show, is in a central place to contribute something to this conversation about the, the Anthropocene. So I think that these are really the stakes and they, they, they become more urgent than they were 20 years ago when Indian Ocean studies was, or 30 years ago when Indian Ocean Studies was beginning to re-emerge in a big way. I just want to add on to what Smriti said. Yes, there is an Indian Ocean turn, uh, and primarily because of all these reasons and also because of security and because of the security claim that certain nation states would like to make. You know, They're also heavily investing in older histories. 
So we see that there is a growing interest in Silk Road connections, right? Or a growing interest in Spice Road connections, uh, primarily to kind of uh, use these older histories to stake a claim in the present, uh, but also to kind of then affiliate with certain places and communities. So um, I guess all these uh, stakes is what is making Indian Ocean studies more urgent, but also uh, the reason why we have to approach Indian Ocean studies very differently. Yeah, and I would like to agree with that uh, idea of approaching it differently, because some of those stakes, because even the national and religious um, uh, uh, sorry, the religious and territorial nationalisms, some some uh, actually mobilize Indian Ocean studies for that. And so what, what's interesting about looking at the contemporary, um, but not forgetting the historical, I think is how the historical functions in that contemporary allows those conversations to be critiqued, to be analyzed differently, to be taken much more seriously. Um, as people mobilize uh, uh, ideas, historical ideas of place and space and relationality across the world in, in increasingly, I would say, violent ways. And um, the Indian Ocean is, 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 is both, um, if taken seriously, questions of power, you know, is, is a really interesting critique and it's a, it can be a really interesting analytical space to also understand uh, some of the places where people are coming from in building these narratives. And so it's, it's as, as Smriti was saying, it's a very urgent space and a very important one. Thank you so much for that. I, I think that that's an incredibly important sort of reminder to um, us as scholars of the Indian Ocean about the contemporary stakes of our work and the fact that the Indian Ocean today stands not just as, you know, one of the foremost uh, hotbeds of contestation and competition between great power, security, um, international relations, diplomatic relations, but also most of the places that are most vulnerable and most um, prone to the the catastrophic um, effects of climate change are located along the, the Indian Ocean littorals. I'm thinking about Bangladesh and the Horn of Africa and East Africa in particular. Um, the fact that most of these places, the very, the very, their very conditions of livability are being challenged by the magnitude of climate catastrophe that we're facing, I think that really heightens the stakes of um, Indian Ocean studies. And I think that I really appreciate your volume because it calls for nothing short of a of an entire sort of methodological reorientation. I think that this is most apparent in the final section, Methods and Disciplines, with contributions by Laura Meek, uh, Pallavi Sriram, and Vivian Choi, that take up feminist methods as well as um, recent works in science and technology studies to read the Indian Ocean differently. But I think that this sort of reorientation of method is apparent throughout um, all the sections where there's an increased engagement, where, where there's a sort of, sort of really careful engagement with mnemonic practices, somatic practices, practices um, that's that are circumventing perhaps the protocols and logics of territorial nationalisms. Um, the other thing that I think um, marks the sort of methodological reorientation that this volume introduces really is foregrounding the question of positionality and reflexivity. I think that that's something that um, us as scholars of the Indian Ocean today cannot afford to ignore. Um, and you make clear that this is an ex uh, that an explicit reckoning of positionality and the conditions of knowledge production is indispensable to the study of the Indian Ocean. 
Um, and this is really sort of apparent in the fact that most of the contributors in this volume are women and specifically women of color. Um, so here I just perhaps want to open up this question. How have feminist methodologies, either the recuperation of subaltern voices in women's history or the questioning of stable subjectivities and bounded spaces in this sort of post-structuralist feminist turn, or the recent emphasis on the material, the somatic, the affective in recent works in feminist cultural studies, how have they enriched our understanding of the Indian Ocean? And how might we continue to think through these feminist interventions um, as we are faced with the magnitude of um, the stakes of studying the Indian Ocean today? So one of the things that was so striking to us um, in our experiment um, was how we, uh, the three of us, um, ended up always kind of having a slightly different take on things than other people around us, including at conferences, including at different things. I mean, we were trying to also figure out, you know, what what was it about our backgrounds, about our take, what were the things, and we, we talked about this a bit at the beginning, you know, that brought us to look at things differently and to... Um, to be able to question or to um, hold as important um, some different things um, than had had previously been, and one of the things that struck us is that most of the contributors and you know and us were were women of color, and that that actually did make a difference. That you ended up asking different questions, and I think that's always you know one of the most important and fundamental ideas of feminist methodologies is about the kinds of questions you ask um, and um, how those questions might be able to um, uh, bring bring in a different, not just a different perspective, but a different analytic, a different conceptualization, both of the spaces that we're dealing with and um, the the kinds of approaches that we came to. And so I think a number of different people in the volume really bring out that experiment of methodology as well, because that, that became part of our, if you can say experiment as a methodology was part of our methodology, because it was about saying, let's approach this from different ways, but have a combined conversation and an intimate conversation about it that then uh, can uh, find that relationality and find that uh, space of commensurability or of, of interest or of incommensurability in, in the conversation, in part of the experiment. And so I'm sure uh, my colleagues have more to say on it, but I think um, in, in all of the, um, the different experiments, though, it was rarely just one thing. So it wasn't just feminist methodologies or uh, science and technology studies, but it was actually how those things interact with each other, how those approaches, multiple approaches and in ethnography included in digital and, uh, you know, um, uh, performance uh, allowed for a different kind of conversation. I'd just like to add on to what Bettina said. Yes, one of the things that we realized is our ways of knowing was very different. And the ontological knowledges that we brought and the ontological knowledges that we learned from our collaborators and contributors were very different, you know. So the embodied histories, our embodied histories kind of came together in a very nice manner. Uh, but again, uh, when we're talking about Pallavi Sriram or majors, they're also practitioners. 
uh, their choreographers, dancers, so their body narratives and the way they rather reinscribe in spaces are very different. So not only were they revisiting the Indian Ocean, but then again, they were rendering their own histories and revisiting histories through their own practice, uh, but also through their, uh, you know, uh, methods too. So that is uh, one thing that some of these scholars are bringing, like a certain kind of embodied understanding. And also one of the things that you will see is that uh, there is an attention to micro-narratives, you know, or micro-histories. So uh, that is, again, a feminist intervention, you know, and also looking at Cotonian spaces is, again, a feminist intervention because we are talking about practices that are mundane, you know, practices that are not kind of in high relief. So that, again, is um, probably as, uh, you know, women of color, an intervention to the understanding of Indian Ocean worlds. Right. So I think I think our positionality was was definitely critical in uh, the way in which we approach this book, uh, Kelvin. Um, but I'd say that even when not explicitly feminist, uh, many of the contributions in this book bring um, allied per- parallel perspectives to bear uh, that might, you know, have you know, for instance, uh, the focus on certain subaltern authors or the focus on Uh, uh, non-human subjects or actors in this. I think uh, all of these share a notion, a non-linear notion of time, uh, but also uh, a sense of space as being unstable or or being um, uh, undone in several ways. And I think uh, the sense that one can't write the history of the Indian Ocean or study it or research it in a depersonalized way. So I think there's a, a sense in which we were really trying to do that. Um, and fundamentally, I think it's to create some kind of an epistemological break with the ways in which Indian Ocean Studies has been done until now. Uh, and uh, I think that really was the, the, the fundamental uh, contribution of this volume. Um, and so the people come from very different disciplines, but I think some of these concerns were shared among all of them. Um, Thank you so much for that. And well, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so just as a way of wrapping things up, would you mind telling us a few words about what you're currently working on and about your current and future projects? Um, well, um, I, I have several at the moment. Um, I seem to be involved in several collaborative projects. The first is uh, a uh, edited volume um, dedicated to the saint uh, Shidi Sai Baba that Nilima mentioned, and I'm co-editing this with uh, Nilima and another uh, professor, Professor Alan Roberts. Um, the saint died in 1918, but he has a vast transcultural following across Asia and Africa. And so we're uh, looking at this particular saint who sort of defied religious nationalisms of his time uh, as a way of uh, doing Indian Ocean studies. So we want to bring, uh, he becomes an optic or a prism to track mobilities and visualities and uh, refabulations across the Indian Ocean world. So that's the first project. And Nilima might want to say more. Um, The second is that uh, this this volume, Reimagining Indian Ocean Worlds, actually inaugurates a series uh, at Rutledge 
of which I'm a co-editor, uh, the, the Rutledge series in the Indian Ocean and Trans-Asia, which is a, a, a different focus than what uh, we did previously, uh, which uh, looks and, and, you know, I won't go into it in detail, but we're, we're, we have um, a, a second volume coming out and a third in process. And so we're looking, I'm looking to build that series. My own book, uh, I have a, a project of my own, uh, which I sort of talked about in passing at the annual Gandhi lecture uh, at Yale uh, some months ago, which is on ecologies in the Indian Ocean. And uh, um, that's it for me for now. <laughs> um, thanks for that. I, I'm working on a book on Nairobi, and I'm particularly interested in this book at looking at time and space of long-term residents in Nairobi and, and really investigating issues of temporality and trying to rethink about how we might talk about uh, cities in Africa um, and cities in the world in general, actually, um, uh, by rethinking some of the, 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 the temporalities um, that come up um, in, in different ways across, across the city. And um, that's one project. On the other side, I have a film project uh, which deals with um, the moment just before independence in, in Kenya, but it's a feature film project because I want to tell this again, a story of the city of Nairobi in a very different uh, manner that's more broadly accessible and can give some feel of its uh, wide uh, international and local politics and social life of uh, a moment just before independence. Those are my two projects at the moment. Uh, Smriti just spoke about two of the projects that I'm currently doing. So one is the edited volume that I'm again working with Smriti Srinivas and Al Roberts and the Rutledge Indian Ocean series. So aside from these two projects, um, I'm also co-editing a journal um, on Indian Ocean and Afro-Asian affinities. Uh, it is going to come out through Verge. It is, I guess, 8.1. So with Smriti and Bettina are also collaborating. So it's going to be a very interesting volume where we are trying to use the Indian Ocean framework to understand African-Asian affinities and African-Asian studies. So kind of, uh, you know, trying to use uh, Indian Ocean to see how can we talk about these two different continents. Um, my own book project is called as um, Invisible Histories, and I'm trying to get my manuscript done by summer. And um, I'm looking at uh, African sacred geographies in Western India and trying to uh, compare um, Sufi shrines for African martyrs and saints with, uh, you know, uh, small novel shrines dedicated to African slave spirits in the Malabar coast and trying to see how the sites, you know, tell us histories of African migration to Western India, but also tells us about, uh, you know, the way that people are kind of restoring African histories and African past, uh, but also about the subaltern community stakeholderships in the spaces. Thank you so much for that. So thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. I it, It's really my pleasure and honor to be able to interview you. And thank you, listener, for listening to today's episode in which we explored the path-breaking, reimagining Indian Ocean roles, 
co-edited by Smriti Srinivas, Bettina Nguyenu, and Ilima J. Chandran, and published by Rutledge in 2020. You can find the book on bookshop.org and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.